And as our band comes off, you may take your seat. It's so good to see all of you today. What a joy, what a privilege. I've asked uh, Lori Taylor to to minister the word today. I asked her several weeks ago. I've been out of town, and I knew I was coming back late in the week. And uh, she has filled in for me once earlier this year uh, in the summer. And uh, as we were on that summer series, Seven Statements of Christ, the I Am Statements. And today, she's going to bring the word that God's put on our heart for us today. So would you help me welcome Dr. Lori Taylor. Good morning. Or to a lot of people in this church, I'm just Gamma. Yeah, that's what the grandkids call me. Okay, so I'm going to start by reading a snippet from an article that's going to let you know where we're going this morning, okay? And then we're going to pray and get on with it. This is by a gentleman named Jonathan Burness of the Jewish Voice. The biblical symbolism of the Jewish Messiah and Redeemer of the world has been a mystery to mankind, but there is good news because God has given us the keys to understanding the things that are hidden. Revelation is reserved for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see what is concealed in the shadows that form the likeness of Yeshua, Jesus. That privilege is given to the body of Messiah, and the time for these secrets to be unlocked is now. We are stewards of the mysteries of Messiah so we can co-labor together to hasten his return. Both Old and New Covenant are packed with puzzle pieces of the Ancient of Days who is destined to bring saving grace to Abraham's seed and the nations. He has always existed and was with God the Father before the foundation of the universe. It is God's glory to conceal and mankind's glory to uncover. I think that's a a neat statement. So it is our job to fit pieces together to discover the Son of Man's likeness. Yeshua's image is seen in the form of the angel of the Lord and King Melchizedek. His shadow is evident in the fire by night and the cloud by day. And as the Israelites wandered through the wilderness, he is the temple not built with hands, And his attributes appear in the articles of worship within God's special place in the outer and inner courts and in the Holy of Holies. So as you all know, what's going on in Israel right now, um, God laid this on my heart to speak about before that even happened. Of course, he knows knows what's going to happen before, way before we do, right? So I want to pray for Israel and I want to pray for us and then... We'll talk about some of these mysteries and puzzles that we get to reveal. Father, we join our hearts together and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we acknowledge that the Jewish people are your chosen, your chosen nation, Father, and we just pray for their peace. I pray for wisdom. We pray for all of those concerned in the conflict, Father, would you, would you reveal yourself to those who, who don't know you, Father? Would you, would you bring peace to their hearts, and would you put in their, in their minds that, that gnawing that makes them search for you and only you? Father, I pray that you would do the same in us today. 
that you would reveal truth, that we would have the fire in our belly to figure out and to seek you while you may be found. I thank you in advance, God, in Jesus' name. All right, Luke 8.10 says, He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you, but to others I speak in parables. This is Jesus talking. So that though seeing, they may not see, though hearing, they may not understand. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 2, and this is Paul speaking of he and Apollos. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required of those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. And I want, I want us, us all to realize that this morning God has given us a trust. And part of that trust is to seek him and to know what is happening. How do we share the truth? Unless we know the truth, we cannot share it, right? All right. So what I'm going to start out talking about this morning is a type and shadow. I read that from uh, Rabbi Jonathan Burness earlier about how there are types and shadows of Christ seen all through the Old and New Testament. <clears throat> and what we're going to talk about today is about the Jewish wedding. And I want, at first we're just going to go through what the wedding's like, and I want to see if you can figure out what you find in the edicts that have been followed for millennia to be able to be married in the Jewish faith. All right, so first we start out, and I want to apologize for any of my Jewish friends out there as I try to pronounce these words because this country girl may not be pronouncing it right. So please know it's, I have done my due diligence to try, but it's probably not going to be good. All right, the covenant is the first thing that happens, or the ketchubah. And this is a covenant that is made only by the groom. The bride has to agree to be married, but the groom has to undergo legal proceedings and sign contracts that say he will provide everything that the bride needs. Food, clothing, marital relationships so that she can bear children, all of the things that she needs, he provides. And he has to sign for it legally. She does not bear that legal responsibility. After the ketchuba is signed and legally processed, there is the bridal payment. And this payment is, is called the mohar, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. And it has to be a, a gift of great price that is legally set aside for the bride that provides for her in any eventuality. Okay, so the groom and the groom's father must make it so that regardless of what happens, she is cared for the rest of her life. And this is that the mohar or the bridal payment that gets paid. 
after they make that payment, the mikveh happens, which is a ceremonial bath. And nowadays, just women do it. But back in the ancient times, both the groom and the bride had to undergo the mikveh. And this was done in a river or an ocean or a well-fed stream or a river. And the reason why that happened is because the, um, the traditions set down were that this water had to be of divine source. It could not be something that was somehow changed by man or touched by man. This had to be water that was created before the foundation of the earth. And it was meant to provide purity and holiness. This was the rabbi's way of saying only God. God is the only source that produces purity and holiness. So after the mikveh, came the betrothal, and that is called the erusin, E-R-U-S-I-N. And this was the first of two ceremonies that happened before the rabbi, and what literally happened there was bride and groom would meet, having been completely cleansed, and the rabbi would hand a cup of wine, and they called it the cup of joy, to the groom, he drank from it, then handed it to the bride, she drank from it, and the, the groom has to then state, you are now consecrated to me by the laws of Moses, and I will not drink from this cup again until I drink it with you in my father's house. That should ring a bell, Right? So after this betrothal, they're not married, and they're going to spend a lot of time apart, but if they were to separate, they would have to get divorced. It's not something that we in our Western minds can understand, but it is a commitment that is so solid that a legal divorce would have to be done in order to separate them in the spirit. After the betrothal came the matan, and this is a parting gift. This was not a legal provision, but this was a, a sweetness and a kindness and a taking care of the bride. The groom would provide a parting gift that would stay with her all the time that they were apart and that would provide what she needed at the time, it was also an assurance that he would return to get her. And then came the period of waiting. At the completion of the betrothal and the matan, the groom left to go back to his father's house to prepare a place for them to have their, the rest of their lives together. The groom had to physically build at least one new room. He also had to build the furniture. He had to create the rugs. He had to 
forge the lamps. He had to get everything prepared that they would need for life. He also had to prearrange for the wedding feast. He had to get the food and the wine and the musicians and the the venue and all of that arranged. But the groom didn't even know when the wedding would actually happen. Because the groom's father was in charge of that. So the groom got busy, and then on the other side, the bride went back to her father's home. She had to get her wedding clothes ready. She had to prepare her body. She also had her bridesmaids there with her, who were obviously unmarried women, so virgins, who were with her and stayed with her because a wedding ceremony and this whole process was a community process. This was not just between two families. It was the whole community joined in. And this time of waiting could last from one to seven years. Can you even imagine? She didn't know. He didn't know. But they were going to be ready. And they had to They had to make sure that, especially the bride and her bridesmaids, had to make sure that all the time they had oil lamps ready, they had enough oil, they had their wicks trimmed, because often the father would say in the middle of the night, in the darkness, it's time to go get your bride. So, um, after, when it came time for the wedding to happen... The father would say to the groom, it's time to go get your bride. And he, a messenger for him, would shout among the community, walking up and down the streets, Behold, the bridegroom! And and a shofar would sound. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Todd. (laughs) That was a little bit of theatrics, but it, it's neat to actually experience a little bit of what would go on. And they would go to the, the whole community behind the bridegroom, would go to the bride's father's house and find her there, completely dressed in her wedding garb with her veil on. But the veil was not covering her face at that time. It's an important thing to remember. Remember. Then the whole community would lift the bride up. They would put her on um, a litter, you know, like one of those queen thrones with the sticks. They would put her on that and then lift her up in the air to carry her back to the father's house. They would take her there, and once they got there, the bride and groom would have a ceremony called the Bedekin. And that's when the groom beheld his bride, and he pulled the veil down over her face. And this symbolized that, number one, he had the right girl. Important, right? But then he covered up her face before they went to consummate the marriage, because this was not about physicality. This was not about her beauty, This was a spiritual union that was about to happen, and it didn't have to do with how she looked. 
And then they would go into the bridal chamber that the groom had been faithful to prepare and consummate the marriage. The, the, The bridal chamber was called the chuppah. And now in wedding ceremonies, they have a chuppah during the ceremony. And then the bride and groom meet under the chuppah and then go into a room for a few minutes and just spend some time alone and come back out. That's the symbolization of what used to happen. But the bride and groom in the olden times would literally spend whatever time they spent together getting to know each other on that physical level that we all understand. And then came the feast, the wedding feast. There's, the Bible does not say how much time happens before the bride is lifted up and carried to the Father's house and the, the consummation time happens. It does not say exactly when the feast starts, but that feast lasts for seven days. And during the time that the feast is going on, the first days the bride is completely hidden away in the bridal chamber. And on the seventh day, she is brought out and presented to the community and joins in with the feast. And this is, the feast is called the Suda. And then they have their marriage. They go and live their life and make babies and and do all the things that happy couples do. So, how how do we relate this to what we understand? The clue here is that God is very, very simple in the way he teaches us. You know that Jesus always taught in parables, right? He He gave us easy to follow things that a child would understand. He laid things out so simply that it confounds people who call themselves wise. And this is a very simple thing that little girls playing future bride would have gone through all of these steps and they would have known this intimately. Little did they know that they understood what would be happening during the new covenant all the way through the end. So for us... We go back to the start of this, the covenant, and we read in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. And I want to stop right here. This is one of the very few times that God likens himself to a husband instead of a father. Because he wanted them to understand, I'm trying to relate this to something very simple. You already know. This covenant is about that marriage process. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, 
for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. This new covenant. Romans eleven twenty five through 27 says, I do not want to be ignorant of this mystery. And whenever God prompts someone to write the word mystery, there's something there to find. Brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's talking about that beginning covenant in that in that marriage time where he has promised to give them everything they need. Then we go to the bridal payment, the mohar that we talked about, that substantial gift. What scripture do you think we might use for that? Most of y'all know I'm a I'm a professor, so you gotta like you gotta like Answer me back. What's the best gift God could give? Where's that scripture? John three sixteen. That's right. Absolutely. The gift is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to contemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then we go to the mikveh. Have any of y'all ever wondered why Jesus needed to be baptized by John? Doesn't that seem kind of strange? Jesus, fully God, fully man, why would he have to be baptized? Good, I'm glad you asked. Matthew three thirteen through 15 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do it, to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. In doing that, Jesus was demonstrating in his all-man portion, he was demonstrating justice, Righteousness and purity. That when you look up the Greek word for righteousness that's used right there, it is it is following exactly the wedding terms to a T. He was baptized in the Jordan River, which was a divine source of, of water that had been created before the foundation of the earth. Jesus was following the letter of the law so that his people would be able to relate this to something they knew intimately. Then Acts 2 is where Peter says that we should be baptized, right? says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. Have you ever wondered about that, why it says, for the forgiveness of your sins? Does it mean we have to be baptized to be saved? Here's your clue. No. That word for is indicating that a point has been reached. It's a demonstration that we have come to the point 
of knowing that we needed God, his source, his water was the only one that could bring us to the holiness. So this is just indicating that we have consented to the mikvah in being wedded to our bridegroom. Then we go to the betrothal. And you remember the groom said to the bride under the hoop or um, in front of the rabbi, I won't drink of this cup again till I see you in my father's house. Jesus said the same thing when he was meeting with at the, at the last supper. It says, then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. It's the same, same. It's so simple. It matches. And then the parting gift, the matan. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says... And you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. And 2 Corinthians 1, 21 through 22 says, Now it is God who makes both us and you Stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the Holy Spirit is our gift from our bridegroom that he left before he went away to his father's house to prepare a place for us, right? We all know this. I'm looking around in here, and I see everybody. I th- I'm fairly certain that you all know Jesus. You've all been in church. You know that, that this is the case. And then comes the waiting period. That's where we are. And I want to say, before I go on, there are lots of theories from learned people who love Jesus and have studied about the progression from from here. And I'll tell you what I believe. And one of the reasons I believe it is because it's so simple and laid out in a way that Jesus prepared his his people to know it. But that doesn't mean I'm right about the the timing of the rapture and and all of those things. <clears throat> John 14 says, Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you? I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you will also be where I am. You know the way to this place where I'm going. Titus 2 calls it, the blessed hope. And First Thessalonians 1.10 says, Wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
this is there's there's many things that we could discuss about timing for the rapture and this is one of them that God tells us he is he is rescuing us from the coming wrath and then the wedding procession the thing that we're waiting for that some glad morning or some glad midnight when when this life is over and things change for us in a twinkling of an eye John the Revelator, who is the one that God gave revelations to, to write down. In Revelations, in the third chapter, John is relating what Jesus said about the different churches. And then they move to John 4, and everything changes. John 4, 1 says, After this I looked up. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first heard, heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At this point in Revelations, the church is on earth. But then John hears a command that says, Come up here. And after he Here's that command. The church is no longer seen in revelations on earth. The church is in heaven until the last part. First Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18 says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that... We who are still alive and are left will be caught up. And that word in Greek is harpazo, which means claimed for oneself eagerly. So this scripture literally means that the ones of us who are left alive on earth will be claimed by Jesus for himself eagerly, caught up, moved up. Just like the bride was put on the litter and lifted up into the air to be taken to the Father's house. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 1 Corinthians 15 50 through 54 says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. There's that word again. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. You remember what happened after that that processional back to the father's house. They had the veiling ceremony, and then the bride and groom were together for the consummation. 
And what happens, what happens in a spiritual way supposed, supposed to be on the wedding night between bride and groom? I, we all know what happens. I'm just saying, what happens to the flesh? They become one, right? They come together in such a way that they become one spiritually. And that's what happens with us here. Our imperishable, our, our perishable flesh, we get our new bodies. We will become imperishable to live with Jesus forever. Literally, guys, this is literally true. For real. I need somebody to be happy about this. Are y'all happy about this? Yes. Okay. <clears throat> so then during that, during that time, after the consummation, the feast begins. And the feast begins in heaven. All the while, the bride is hidden away in the bridal chamber. Right? So while we don't know how long between the rapture, the taking away of the bride, we don't know how long between that and the feast or that and um, the, I've lost the word, the seven years. Um, what is that? The tribulation, yes. Okay, I lost, y'all ever do that? I mean, there's like studies about the fact that when you're menopausal, you lose nouns. So I'm just saying. All right. So, <laughs> so we digressed a little bit there. Um, so the bride is hidden away in heaven when the tribulation starts on the earth. And during that seven years, the, the earth is going through all kinds of horror more so than we can even imagine now. And we are hidden away in that bridal chamber. And the feast is going on in heaven. That's the picture that God gives us. And so, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I've taken more time than I'm supposed to. So I'm going to kind of um, go through this a little bit better here. Um, now, I'm, I'm going to read this scripture. Oh, okay. One of the things I wanted to say, too, was that as we are taken up as the bride, there is another spiritual thing that happens. We, as the bride of Christ, are full of the Holy Spirit, true? And we are, although God is omnipresent, us being taken away does not take the Holy Spirit from the earth, but it takes a huge portion of the repository of the Holy Spirit away. We here, right now, are considered part of the restraining process that keeps the evil one from taking over because we have that deposit of the Holy Spirit inside of us. But when we're taken away, that portion is actually taken away as well. Second Thessalonians 2, 5 through 12 says, Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, what is restraining him, 
so that he may be revealed at the proper time. And this is talking about the Antichrist. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, and we see it happening right now, right? But the one who is holding it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. I don't think that's a surprising scripture to any of us, that the ones left on the earth, there will be people who, who believe the truth during that time, and we'll read a scripture here in just a minute that talks about that. But for the most part, those who are left, it's not going to end well for them. While we are away during the feast, during the time hidden away in the bridal chamber, when all that's done, when that time is fulfilled, and that seven years is up, then then comes the second coming. Now, the rapture is going to be a quiet, peaceful thing. The rest of the world is not going to know anything happened. We're going to be taken away in a twinkling of an eye. But when the second coming happens, when Jesus comes back to the earth after the seven years, he's going to bring us with him. And it's going to be rowdy, really rowdy. Revelations 20, I'm skipping over a few scriptures, guys, sorry, says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him in the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be free for a short time. And I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over him, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So what happens at the end of that seven years is Christ comes and there are all kinds of noise and sound and the whole world knows it. And the enemy is taken and chained in the pit For a thousand years, and Jesus rules and reigns for that millennia. 
and we're with him. This is the time that the lion lays down with the lamb. And the world is unimaginable to us who see Israel being bombed right now and who see all of the topsy-turvy thought processes that we see in the rest of our world right now. I know this can be scary to think about, but I think it's about to happen. I think it's about to happen. And we need to know it. We need to be ready. Some of the young people that I teach, I was having a conversation with them recently, and one of the girls said, I I don't want it to happen. I have a small child. I want him to be able to live. I want, you know, she was just expressing angst. But guys, the bottom line is when you know Jesus, you're taking a seven-year vacation in heaven, and then you're coming back. Now, what it's going to be like when you come back, other than the lion will lay down with the lamb, I don't know. We're going to have to do something. We're going to be worshiping, but there, there are things that will have to be done. And so this is, not, this is not a time to be worried about missing out on something because you're going to be part. When you know Jesus, you're going to be part of the most wonderful thing you can even imagine. There will be nothing like it. I want to encourage you to read the book of Revelations. It says in the first of it that those who read this book will be blessed. And I know it's hard to understand, but God makes things simple for those of us who are willing to ask him about it. I want to pray for us, okay? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the simplicity of your word. I thank you that you you teach us like a sweet and kind father who give give us the information that we need on the level that we can understand it. Your word says that you you knew us before you created us in our, our mother's wombs, that you know us intimately, you know how many hairs are on our head when we cry, you catch our tears in the bottle. You you know us better than we know ourselves, God. And when, when we look at you and say, Dad, I need to understand this, you provide that. So, Father, I just pray that you would take the blinders off, that we would be able to see the truth, and that we would be able to share the truth with others, Father. The cry of our heart says, Please bring peace to Jerusalem. And come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Thank you and praise you that you're not, you're never early and you're never late. And we await the time that we can be ready in our, in our wedding garb for you to, to lift us up to be with you. We praise you and thank you in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.